to the Sci-Fi Roundtable. I'm John Cronshaw. I'm Shane Thomas, and with us today is author Scott Tarbett to talk about the essentials of steampunk. Hello. Hey, Scott. Thanks for joining us. I'm fascinated by steampunk. I think it was such a cool era to kind of launch into, you know, this Victorian era, and then you start adding in automatons and, and various machinery. Just completely fascinating for me. The very word steampunk itself is really hard to nail down. There have been a lot of people who have tried. It depends on how you came at steampunk, whether you came at it from the cinematic side, from the literary side, from the cosplay side, even the music side. All of them have their different ideas of what steampunk actually is and and where it's going. To me, all of those things boil down to steampunk essentially being an aesthetic. And I'm about to throw out a term here. It's retro-futuristic aesthetic, as if the world of Jules Verne were frozen in time and everything after him was science fiction. That makes it steampunk. If you look at things from before the invention of electricity, before the invention of what has come to be known as industrialized warfare, then the world looks very different. Steampunk is essentially a very forward-looking, very optimistic art form that I think is, in some sense, a reaction to how horrible the 20th century turned out. <laughs> and, and the first part of the 21st. <laughs> and the first part of the 21st. There's never been a deadlier, more horrible century in the history of mankind. And so steampunk gives us a chance for a do-over. What do you think is the first steampunk book or character? The oldest one that I've read would be from the uh, L. Frank Baum Wizard of Oz series when he introduces TikTok, the clockwork man. I think if you take all of Jules Verne's stuff and read it with steampunk eyes, it's all steampunk. Frank Baum, certainly, the mechanisms that he uses are what we now call steampunk in nature. Of course, Jules Verne. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was entirely futuristic for his day, and things kind of branch off from there. Uh, Some of the big features of steampunk art that's being produced these days are the gadgets, the airships, the futuristic submarines, which did not exist until after Jules Verne had posited them in in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I guess what we're saying is that steampunk just started off as science fiction, but as more modern audiences went back and read it, it had this different feel because obviously the future went a different way. And now modern authors are writing from that point of view and looking forward from the past, I guess. Exactly. Looking forward from the past is a good way to put it. It's kind of like alternative history, isn't it? In a way, it's, you know, that kind of diverging from the initial timeline and then kind of extrapolating using that technology, which I just find fascinating. Yeah, like an alternative history of technology, perhaps. Exactly right. And that is one of the big central themes of a lot of steampunk literature is that alternative history. It's where I came at the genre and where I love to write. Where I live in the UK, we're very lucky. We have the, I think it's probably the country's biggest steampunk festival every June. 
and the smaller one in October. And he has about 40,000 people wow. turn up <laughs> dressed in Victoriana clothes. And we have all the old traction engines and things rolling around. So it's really cool. Those of us on the other side of the pond who are involved in steampunk look at that as kind of the promised land of the whole steampunk cosplay universe. <laughs> the story that you read in the extract last week was a story that I actually did for last year's steampunk festival it was fun to read I, thanks for uh, turning that over it was great and uh scott's excerpt was really exciting as well uh scott what book was that from it's uh sorry i read it last week so it's uh you know completely out of that mind. Was, reading was from a midsummer night steampunk which is kind of a confection built on the shakespeare play pulled forward a few centuries to queen victoria's diamond jubilee Oh, great. That, yeah, I love that play. That's uh, one of my favorite pieces of Shakespeare. Mine too. I, I was sitting at a, a Utah Shakespeare Festival here near me and watching that play and the rude mechanicals, the country bumpkins come on stage. And all of a sudden it just hit me. Well, in a steampunk sense, these rude mechanicals could actually be mechanical. <laughs> and the whole thing took off from there. There we go. I had the uh, privilege of seeing a performance of that in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, which is about as far from Boston as you can get in Massachusetts, just all the way west, uh, close to the Hudson Valley. And it was a great little Shakespeare troupe out there. I saw it about 12 years ago. It was a lot of fun. Oh, it's it's a lovely play and it gets done a lot. I've seen advertisements for probably a half a dozen steampunk themed productions of a midsummer night's dreams since my novel (laughs) Uh, looks like you started something well i i hope so i got some attention from the utah shakespeare festival because i had um, the founder of that festival take a look at this manuscript before it was published and and he was delighted and very supportive Great. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting crossover. I mean, Shakespeare's era was only maybe 100 or 200 years before where most steampunk settings are. Right. The conceit of A Midsummer Night's Steampunk is that if you look back at the 20th century, at the heart of what we were talking about being the reason that steampunk is so attractive to modern audiences, uh, that do-over concept, I went right back to the root cause of a lot of the awfulness of the 20th century and that's the fact that when you get right down to it kaiser wilhelm's mother didn't take a stick to him (laughs) (laughs) and i gave her a do-over i let her and her friends straighten the boy out before he caused world war one which became world war ii which became atomic weapons and computers and a lot of the stuff that plagues us today. There's a steampunk story where, and I just, I was thinking about it all day, hoping uh, it would suddenly come to light, but I haven't read the the book in maybe five or six years. Uh, It's at least three parts long. And the story is that there's Darwinians that have used genetic modification to advance technology. And then there's the steamers who, you know, clockwork and gears and all that typical steampunk type of tech and airships and and, uh, A.T. Walker type of gunships or whatever. They're called the Clankers version. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. That's the Leviathan series. Ah, great. (laughs) And it was actually the first steampunk that I ever read back in the day. Scott Westerfeld, he's a, a wonderful author. Wow, glad you could pull that. I was I was just racking my head and I couldn't remember that. Yeah, I really enjoyed that series. Yeah, I, I did too, and it really flipped the switch on my imagination. It was very engaging. 
I think we'd be quite remiss if we didn't mention anime again because that seems to be a bit of a running theme with this podcast but I mean there's some <laughs> great steampunk in anime like i was thinking of the original series of full metal alchemist and hell's moving castle and liputa and things like that how you've got all these crazy contraptions and steam elements in those Hell's moving castle especially is very formative for the whole steampunk genre there's a strong flavor of howls in a lot of steampunk ever since you know i haven't seen that one i was a huge huge fan of full metal alchemist though they had the interesting kind of take on the golem didn't they which i think you get in a lot of steampunk as well the golem thing with the one who lives inside that metal shell thing that was such an interesting character just a little boy trapped in a giant suit of armor well, it was his spirit, wasn't it? Because it wasn't it yeah. something to do with him trying to raise someone from the dead and having to pay with, yeah, something crazy with like with his body, and now he's this ghost <laughs> animating armor. Yeah, I don't know if you've read the Golem and the Genie Boy. I think it was Helen Wexler as well. That was a interesting take because that was like set in New York. Because a lot, of, a lot of the steampunk stuff it seems to have got past it now. But for for a while, it was all Victorian London. But I really like the fact that they were doing the Lower East Side stuff in the late eighteen hundreds. It comes right down to, just lately, I mean, mortal engines that Peter Jackson did, where the city of London has been jacked up on treads and is roaming Europe, swallowing up smaller cities and chewing them up and spitting them out, essentially. It's a very fertile field for the imagination. I read a book, I think it was last year, actually, that was really cool. It was called the Watchmaker of Filigree Street. I don't know if you've read that. I have not read that one. The Watchmaker of Filigree Street. Yeah, I think it was Natasha Pulley, I want to say. And it brought in a lot of London history. And it was also about a Japanese clockwork master who'd come over and he things like a, a clockwork octopus. And because he was so good at making clockwork contraptions, he ended up making bombs for the IRA and all this stuff. So it was just oh, lovely, really crazy story. And... There might have been a bit of weirdness with travelling between portals as well, between Tokyo and London. I think that was in there hinted, but it was never 100% clear on that, so that was a great one. There's another branch of it called Weird West. Uh, yeah, yeah. Animated. <laughs> I think that all started with the uh, failed Will Smith movie, The Wild Wild West. <laughs> well, right. <laughs> right? That was probably as high as the genre got was the Will Smith movie. It hasn't aged well i tried to because i I had never seen it when it was out so i tried to make my wife watch it less than a year ago and we got maybe 15 minutes in before she just demanded that we turn it off (laughs) (laughs) and i suppose with that as well you've got back to the future three with the uh time traveling oh yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely yeah very heavily steampunk influenced i mean down to the name of doc brown's boys jules and (laughs) fern Yeah, yeah. John Joseph Adams actually did a really cool anthology of Weird West stuff a few years ago. I think it was called like Dead Man's Hand. And that had a lot of that kind of West style steampunk and weirdness. And there was a really great story in there as well that was about vampires as well, I remember. (laughs) That's a good fit. Uh, You know, uh, the Roundtable's own Angelique Anderson did a great uh, steampunk series that also had shape-shifting dragons. I really enjoyed book one and I've got book two on my list. It's called The Dragon Lady. That was a really fun read. That protagonist sidekick is a little clockwork dragon that is like living gears turning. It's really interesting to read. Wow. That sounds cool. She's slotted to do an episode with us uh, within a month or so. So we'll get to, we'll get to meet her and talk to her a bit. 
reading a thing about Victorian London and it was just about the amount of people who were killed on the streets and you know you couldn't go a day without seeing a couple of corpses floating down the River Thames and stuff it seemed like a Wow. Absolutely <laughs> place to live. So. Yeah. The only the only thing that set Jack the Ripper apart was how he staged his victims. There were a lot of victims. He he just made his spectacular. I suppose you need to get the attention, don't you? If that's what you're into. So yeah, <laughs> while you're doing it, yeah. For listeners who are unaware of this, I mean, what would you say are the key things for something to be steampunk? It's kind of gadgetry. There are a number of different, really distinct gadgets. If I if I were to show you a picture of a girl with what's called a fascinator, a little top hat, hair ornament, and a pair of goggles, you would immediately think she's steampunk. You would know she was steampunk. A person from the Victorian era in an adventurer outfit. Clockwork creatures are an, another favorite one, such as clockwork dragons that we've already mentioned. Almost any time in our era, in 2019, that you see an airship in the movies or you see it on the cover of a book, you automatically can assume that you're looking at steampunk. Trains like Doc Brown's train in Back to the Future 3. So all of these kind of objects and inventions trip the viewer to the fact that it's the piece of art is steampunk in nature, right, to begin with. And then, of course, you get into the gorgeous period dress. I want to say down to the corsets, but these days in steampunk cosplay, the corset actually winds up on the outside being worn as, as outerwear. I also really like it, uh, and I think it's fairly prevalent in steampunk, when you can rewrite some of the female characters in, in a more feminist and, and proactive role, uh, and they're the ones putting on overalls and, and creating things and taking part in the adventure. I've seen that. Oh, absolutely, times. absolutely. There are some archetypal steampunk characters, and girls are at the forefront of that in Probably the majority of steampunk that's been written, certainly in this century, in the in the 90s, it wasn't so much that way. But anymore, if the girls aren't front and center, it's not going to get read. Four fifths of my book sales are to young women. That is not because I am consciously pandering to those women, but they are the ones who are attracted to steampunk because the women are strong. They're not ripping bodices. They're not maidens in distress. They're not being rescued by princes. They are saving princes. The action girl in steampunk is one of the character types that is very prevalent. Along with that one goes the determined widow, the gadgeteer genius. That's the kind of person that my main protagonist in Midsummer Night Steampunk is. She's a young woman who is an artificer. She's actually her father is actually artificer to Queen Victoria. He builds her gadgets, and his daughter has followed in his footsteps. There are a lot of pieces of steampunk literature that, that draw heavily on historical characters. I try and have historical characters in every single steampunk thing that I write. Winston Churchill is a young man meeting his wife, courting her in 1899. We already talked about Kaiser Wilhelm. And his actual real real life mother, who was Queen Victoria's daughter, and on and on. It's just a lot of fun to bring those people into 
these tweaked universes and see how the world would have turned out for those people if technology had just taken a little bit of a different turn. From there, of course, there are mad scientists galore. This is not borne out by scholarly research or anything else, but I think that the whole mad scientist character that emerged in the mid-20th century was pretty literally built on Nikola Tesla. So Nikola Tesla and his inventions feature very strongly in steampunk. Then you get the, we already talked about the adventurers, the officer and the gentleman in an airship in some pieces of literature. Sky pirates are another famous uh, steampunk character type. A lot of sky pirates. I think the one that you started us with is something that I call the wrench wench. You'll see her on a lot of steampunk covers. She's got a smear of grease on her face and a pair of goggles on her forehead and a great big oversized wrench in her hand. <laughs> uh, and you'll see 50 of her at every Comic-Con. The steampunk cosplay community has a lot of wrench wenches in it. From the character types, there are some very distinct steampunk settings. There are three main settings that are very emblematic of steampunk. One is the clockworks area. Um, you'll get into the guts of the great workings of a city. Uh, Mortal Engines is a real example of that. Well, that era was especially exciting because it was the birth of the Industrial Revolution. And a lot of the innovation that came out of that was actually just from uh, hobbyist engineers that after work, they would go to their garage and try to build something. And every once in a while, it was a smashing success. And, you know, automobiles and motors and all these other things were uh, more or less invented in the barn. The Wright brothers built their aircraft in their bicycle shop. It was the age of the tinkerer inventor. And so you see a lot of that happening in steampunk writing. I love the fact that we managed to get a car and go into the air at a very similar time. I think that's quite a cool thing that there was this spirit of invention going on at that particular point in time. Oh, absolutely. You know, on the clockwork kind of city thing, are you familiar with um, Jay Lake stuff, actually? He did the Clockwork Earth series, and it's like the actual universe is revealed to be a bit of a clockwork framework for the earth. There's a great background for that in, in philosophy too. The, the entire clockwork universe. Newton kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you also get a lot of floating continents in steampunk or the traction cities, they call them that are rolling around on gigantic treads or a type of a floating continent, but you get, in various kinds of steampunk, you get people completely divorcing all of the tech from the earth. And so you get settings in which entire continents float or cities float in the air. And the rules of the game are very different than what an author would call the magical systems, the rule of the magical systems or, or tech systems in steampunk. But it's still steampunk because it still has the steampunk aesthetic. You still have the wrench winch. You still have the sky pirates. You still have the goggles and the bustiers and the trappings of steampunk. So it, it goes off in all sorts of different directions. So this is like Laputa, isn't it? Castle in the sky, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Have you read any um, 
China Mayville stuff, actually. Well, Perdido Street stations are what I'm thinking of, and the scar. That just fascinates me. That Yes, I have read it, short answer, and it just wows me. I've dipped back to Perdido Street Station a couple of times, and which is rare for me to read a book more than once. And I've returned to that a couple of times. Yeah, because the magic system in that is kind of a steampunk one where it alters reality. And yeah, just the descriptions of that horrible, horrible cities. Yes. Yeah, the, and there's in the best steampunk, I think there are strong threads of magical reality. And Meville is one of those. And I very much enjoy the writing. I, I don't think I'm capable of doing it that way, but I very much enjoy reading it. Yeah, and he has some cool kind of, I suppose they're almost like genetic marvels as well in that, doesn't he? With the Garudas and the weird insect head people and things right. like that. Whatever the moth thing is as well. <laughs> <laughs> the whole genre uh, really sets people's imaginations free. There's a lot of creativity in steampunk that you just don't find in a lot of rocket ships and robots sorts of things or elves and dwarves kinds of fantasies and whatnot. Steampunk just really pulls out all the stops on the creativity and lets people's imaginations just run wild. And that's one of the reasons so many people like it so much. I'm writing an epic fantasy series at the minute and a lot of the kind of spin-off stories that I've been writing in that are set a little bit in the future from a main story. And so I've been able to throw in some kind of steampunk elements. I've got one that I did called Clockwork Titan, which is about this giant clockwork mechanical robot thing that comes alive and gets psychically attached to this little girl. Yeah, it's really fun. That's a wonderful thought. I'd love to see that. I was going to ask about the micro-mechanicals. It seemed like from the excerpt that I read that they were little robotic bugs. Did they start off life as bugs? Yes, they started off life as bugs and were transformed. Bugs and birds, both. One of my stories in that universe is the story of a Deathstalker scorpion who accidentally gets mechanized. There's a little bit of hand-waving to it, but uh, he becomes a very, very bad character. Peas Blossom, Mustard Seed, those fairy characters, the mechanical flying beings. And then there are the human-sized mechanicals who are human war veterans from the Zulu Wars who have been given prosthetics of various kinds to make them fit for employment in the industries of the Industrial Revolution in England. There's a bellows mender in A Midsummer Night's Dream. He's a bellows. He blows hard in my book. Um, there are people who have carpentry limbs and metalworking limbs and, and that sort of thing. And then there, there are the mega mechanicals. There's Ganesh who was turned into a skyship. And there is a boat character as well on the Thames, a freighter who is a mega mech. And that's got to be an interesting way to spend existence as just a giant conveyance mechanism. Right. With all the millions of bacteria in our intestines, uh, we more or less are conveyance systems. We are. Relatively unaware of our inhabitants. (laughs) Yeah. By weight, a human being is more external entities than it is itself. You know, I've always been really fascinated by that. Uh, And also the notion that our intestinal tract is not truly in us. It is merely 
an environment that goes through us with a semi-permeable membrane into us. I always thought it would be cool to uh, do a story and have characters that were these microbiomes or or little even white blood cells or or parts of us. But my son, my four-year-old watches this cute little documentary show on Netflix called Storybots. And they have an episode about germs that hit it so well that I think I can lay that one to rest. (laughs) (laughs) There was a movie when I was a kid called Magnificent Journey, I think, something like that. Uh, This ship gets shrunk down and injected into a human being and they have their 20,000 leagues under the sea kind of a thing through the internal organs of this dying scientist. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah, I think um, they did a, one in the 80s of that as well that was like Inner Space, I think it was called. Similar kind of concept. Sorry, we kind of sidetracked from Steampunk. Oh, oh, <laughs> no worries. Well, that's, that's one of the great things about being speculative fiction oriented, right? There is no boundary. We can let our minds go wherever our minds want to go. <laughs> and often have to. <laughs> Imagine or don't survive. Yeah. <laughs> Now here's a fun question. If you got to have one steampunk gadget for yourself to use in the modern world, what would you pick? Oh, wow. I fly planes, small planes myself. If I got to have one gadget, it would be to have Ganesh's capabilities. Ah, to have a conscious airship? Yeah. That could be fun. John, you want to field the same question? I'd love to actually live on a moving city that would travel around the world. That would be really neat. You know, as a father, I think I'd like to have TikTok, the wind-up man, as a babysitter. So I'd get out from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many fun inventions in steampunk that you could go on all day with that question. Yeah. tons of tons of fun things you do the conventions uh where can listeners catch up with you and and catch this talk in person or see you in your cosplay i do a lot of stuff here in the intermountain west we do conventions from california nevada utah idaho wyoming colorado arizona so i'm active in that cosplay community or those cosplay communities plural We do a lot of book events, most of them here local, some in Southern California. Probably the best way to keep up with me is online at scotttarbot, all one word, dot temp, T-I-M-P dot net. And there is a section there on the basics of steampunk. You can catch the outline of this presentation. I also teach that one at at various conventions and whatnot, Have, have done it a number of times. With a lot of good visuals, a lot of the appeal of steampunk is visual, after all. There are a lot of good pictures associated with that if you want to look us up. Yeah, and I did poke around the website a bit as I was preparing the show notes, and it it looked pretty interesting. I have a lot of fun with it. I don't have staff to do it. It's just me when I can get to it. So most of my time, obviously, I want to spend writing. The author's life is about, it seems, any more... 50-50 writing and marketing, and the website is marketing. So I try and pay some attention to it, but not as much as I'd like. I approach the whole marketing thing with Science Fantasy Hub as uh, uh, more more from my fanboy side of uh, promoting other other works, and then my stuff is on there as well. (laughs) So it's uh, that way I can kind of invoke passion into the marketing. 
Oh, absolutely. Otherwise, it's just a bit of a drudgery, especially when you're a one-person show. When I land that big non-existent publishing contract anymore <laughs> with a great big huge advance, then I'll hire somebody to do all my social media and it will be fun. Yeah, it's pretty fun to delegate. I agree. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, uh, John, do we have any uh, parting thoughts or last questions? I could geek out about steampunk all day, to be honest. So, yeah, <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was interesting. And yeah, I really want to plug the splendiddayout.com which is the Morecambe Steampunk Festival. So it's every June and they have a smaller one in October and 40,000 people turn up, lots of them in cosplay and there's all the crazy old vehicles and fairgrounds and just absolutely loads of stuff going on. Oh, I would love to see that. That would be great. And it's by the sea as well, so it's gorgeous. (laughs) And hey, thanks for joining us, Scott. And to our listeners, uh, check out the show notes and you'll find out how to connect with Scott and uh, all of uh, the normal links for the Roundtable, the Science Fantasy Hub, and uh, all of John's other podcasts and projects. Until next week, thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye Bye-bye.